the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. September 11th marks the 20th anniversary of the World Trade Center attacks. Today's guest, Lisa Luckett, lost her husband on that day, leaving her a single mother of three. Lisa survived the unimaginable and learned to face any experience head-on, choosing to see the silver lining in all situations. Lisa is a life coach, speaker, and CEO of Cosmina Enlightened Living, a brand of kindness. She is the author of the book, The Light in 9-11, Shocked by Kindness, Healed by Love. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thanks so much for having me. So, Lisa, for me, this is a special show for any of us around the country, but particularly for those of us in the New York, New Jersey region. It's hard to believe that it's been 20 years since that attack. In some ways, it feels like it was yesterday, but in others, it it feels like an eternity. And so today, I want to learn about your experience that day and in the years following And I want to talk a bit about your husband, Teddy, who we lost that day. So let's start off by talking about what that day was like for you. What were you doing before you learned about the attack? So I had just taken my daughter, Jen, to second grade. She was not feeling well, so we went a little late. And I had my four-month-old on my shoulder and my four-year-old walking in the door with me while the the phone was ringing. It's about five minutes to nine. When I picked up, a friend of mine said to me, Lisa, what tower is Teddy in? And I said, the one with the antenna on it. Why? And she said, and I quote, well, turn on the TV because a plane just hit it and took off the top 15 floors. She didn't ask me what floor he was on. He was on the 105th floor, two stories from the top. So what she had basically told me was that he was on the ground and he was dead. The first beginning of the misinformation that followed in 9-11. So I, in the moments that I ran to turn the television on, I was so relieved to see the building still standing. But I also, in a very strange way, had a very different experience of 9-11 than probably anyone when I think about it, because this odd history prepared me for that morning in a way I would never have expected. First point being that he walked down from the first explosion in 1993 from the same offices. And in those, those, that explosion, you couldn't see smoke anywhere. It was, there was no smoke outside of the buildings. So when I saw that black, thick, billowing smoke below him, I knew he was gone. But your mind won't necessarily receive it. And the reason I knew that was because when he got home the first time in 93, he was so covered in soot that the shower ran black for like five minutes. And that had, you know, so that clearly the smoke was a huge problem. So the the second piece, so as that day progressed, um, when the initial shock took me to my couch, right, my sons and I together watched the second plane of the second building. And I don't know how long it was when I kind of woke up from my shock stupor and with this understanding that I had to function, that I had three children and I had to get them through this. And that began began a journey that has taken me to this conversation with you today. So when you first turned on the television and you saw that the plane hit the tower, from that moment on, did you have any communication with Teddy at all? No, he had, um, he, he, I believe that they were in an early sales meeting. I knew they were, and they were in the 
southwest corner of the building and the plane actually, if you look at the trajectory, came up underneath them. Mm-hmm. So no one from his group was ever heard from, which in a way I've always been peaceful with because it's never been final to me. Like I, my experience of, which is the long short story here, is that it was a very spiritual experience for me that I knew he was with me that whole time. And that morning, uh, about 11 o'clock in the morning, when my house was full of people and both buildings had already fallen and the dud, people were just stunned that I had shifted into this very surreal place. And I was observing us all. And I was in this very calm, clear place for two other reasons. Not only had I had the experience of terrorism, already and I got angry the first time in 93 when no one else cared and they swept it under the rug and everyone went back to normal and disregarded it completely so eight years later big surprise we get hit again but the second piece was that his my mother-in-law who was kind of a tortured soul and enjoyed torturing me basically told me every time I saw her that he was going to die of a heart attack for the 11 years we were married uh, because he was a little overweight and he was stressed out and working a Wall Street job and just in her opinion didn't take care of himself. So what that did was made me run his death through my mind over and over and over again until I would be weeping in the middle of the night with him laying next to me. And here's the epitaph of that. We bought as much life insurance as we could afford. I knew where all the important documents were and made sure we went to bed having righted any wrongs so there wouldn't be regret and I let it go. So that by the morning of 9-11, with that preparation, with the idea that he'd gone down, he'd already walked down and I dealt with terrorism before, with the fact that I'd already run his death through my mind. It was like the other shoe dropped and I bounced. So here I was, I was also a nursing mother of a four month old and nature doesn't let you go down. So here I find myself in this very clear, calm place where I could observe what was going on. Well, I remember reading an article you had written many years ago and I remember reading it and you describe that you were watching the tower go down and you calmly said goodbye Teddy you just described in an, in a very intellectual way the events of the day but where did you get that strength to say that goodbye to him yeah, that's a great question I don't know mm-hmm. you know I think that it was so clear to me in my experience of it he was gone and it was like living it was like living in a movie script Joan the whole thing when I look at it now, and yeah, it's super intellectualized 20 years later and, you know, years of therapy and years of study and years of anthropology and sociology and all the pieces that go into why we're talking today, which is where are we 20 years later? What has happened since 9-11 on this 20th anniversary, which is the ultimate conversation. But yeah, I think I was just in the moment, literally with him in the moment. And I think, Lisa, that goodbye for your healing I think that was really important because so many people, you know, they talk about this word closure. I I don't know if you ever get that, but so many people who experienced that day with you, they never got to see their loved one again, and they never got to do that emotional, spiritual goodbye. And And I think that moment probably saved you. Well, and you can add to that the fact that we had like the biggest fight of our marriage the night before, Uh you know, but, but when he walked out the door the next day, he said to me, I said to him, I love you. You are my soulmate. And he said, I love you too. And that's the last time I saw him. So literally when I say a movie script, it really was. So that saying goodbye when he, when the building fell, I mean, it was just, I don't know. I believe truly I was guided through all of it in, in such a spiritual higher power way. I mean, that morning when my house was full of people and I could feel their pain and I could feel my own, like not only had my husband most likely died, you know, in my mind, I, we still held out hope of course, but you're, you know, and you know, I was, my country had been attacked. So I'm a patriot like anyone else. And I, so I was in that experience But what I recognized so importantly, which I was a huge pivot in my life, was that people wanted to help me because they were projecting the idea of that loss if it had been them, right? There but for the grace of God. So, you know, they wanted to help me so much, so much, so much. And the truth was there was nothing anyone could do. But what I heard in that moment was, Lisa, let them help you, which almost killed me, Joan, because I'm I'm a product of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I am woman. Hear me roar. I, am, you know, I don't need help. I don't want help. I can do it all. So it almost killed me. But I let go and I surrendered 
my ego. And in that moment of surrender, I was literally overwhelmed by these feelings of gratitude and humility and grace and this love that came with it instantaneously. And that was at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And I could feel Ted behind, I feel, I could feel these, what felt like hands behind me holding me up. I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but you're, I, I literally was just in the experience and I just did what I trusted myself to do. And I knew very clearly, very quickly, it could have been so much worse. It could have been 1230 in the afternoon, like it was in 1993. And those buildings could be full and we could have lost literally tens of thousands of more people that our world had just shifted on the, on its axis that nothing would be the same again, and that it would be three year, two years to a new normal, a word I had never heard in my, an expression in my life before. What was a new normal 20 years ago? What does that even mean? So what that told me was put your head down and go. Do what's in front of you. All you care about is all it meant to me was getting my kids through this, like navigating them through this maelstrom, that fierceness, that warrior. But it was a warrior of love. I was never angry. I didn't get angry at the terrorists again. I got angry in 93. It just never happened. It wasn't something I willed or intellectually thought about at all. It just I cared about getting my kids through what was going to be this incredible chaos for years ahead of me. And I could just I knew it. I just knew it. So that day. It's in all of our minds. The attention, it, you know, it comes and it goes, but now all eyes will be focused on that once again. With that attention, what do you want us all to know? What is your message to the families and also to everyone in our country? What do you want us to know about that day? There's many ways I'd like to answer that, Joan. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one that comes to mind is that maybe we need to look at this in a new light. Maybe 9-11 actually opened the world. Maybe 9-11 is actually a birth canal to a new order. And as weird as that seems and sounds, think about it. It, 24-hour cable news had only become a thing with the Gulf War in 1991 with CNN. It was in its infancy. Cable in itself was in its infancy. infancy. The The internet was maybe 1993, thereabouts, also in its infancy. And then you get the attacks on 9-11, which affect 80 countries, lost people in the towers and in the Pentagon and Shanksville. So all of a sudden you have a media feeding frenzy that's global and worldwide that everyone had an hour plus time to turn on in their own homes and witness happening in real time. There will never, I will say this, maybe people say that, never say never, but I believe You will never have, and excuse the expression, a home run like that, that terrorists hit it out of the ballpark. We will never be that naive again. The world watched a world, truly a world stage. And at the same time as technology started to take off and 9-11 literally opened the world in that way. So what do you want us to take from that, Lisa? Well, what I want to take from it is the idea that we need to look at it because I don't believe we've done anything but be victimized by it for 20 years. We haven't had time to heal. We haven't put our attention toward the emotional healing that was very much needed because everything was beautiful in the two years that followed, right? The unity, the patriotism, all the social walls came down. People loved each other. The love was palpable. And then they cleaned up the site in a record amount of time. It was supposed to take two years. It took nine months. And all of a sudden, the mission was over. And we went back to where we were, but we were further down the spectrum of fear. And as humans, we are naturally fearful. We're, creatures, you know, we're, we're animal, mammal creatures. We have fear as a base. That fear was now on an exponential level with terrorism, and it lodged in at a cellular level. And I believe it started an emotional spin that created a centrifugal force, an emotional centrifugal force that we all watched as those buildings fell, it began to spin. And in that spin, it pushed on everyone so that where we were broken emotionally, we broke further. And I experienced it in both sides of our families because they were already dysfunctional and they exploded and got so much worse, never, never recovered. And I could see it on a, on a macro level with other people in society. And we can, you know, there's a whole nother conversation in that. But what I would like to have people take from it at the 20th anniversary is a shift in perspective to look, to shift, to decide that we need to look at not only the things 9-11 and shift away from finger pointing and blame instead and maybe see our part in what we look like on the world stage. So until we spin and we start to look at things just from a different point of view, not saying it's right or wrong, 
We can't loosen the knot that we are so now constricted in after 20 years of collective trauma that is now bookended by starting with 9-11 and ending with COVID. Two collective traumas that changed the world. And in between them all was what? Countless hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, and countless shootings. So man-made and Mother Nature, we have not been able to come up for air. So maybe what COVID was, was Mother Nature's way of, of giving us a timeout to catch our breath. And one of the analogies I just want to share is in those early days after 9-11, I had this image of a stagecoach barreling down a mountainside, you know, out of control because the driver let go of the reins. We went crazy. We went to war within a week. But the point is, we've never picked the reins back up. And maybe COVID was a way of literally saying, whoa, slow down. Let's look at this. Let's take an, take an assessment of where we are. So, Lisa, you just mentioned the things that we've experienced in the past 20 years, culminating with COVID. And in those period, in that period of time, people have suffered financial devastation, loss of loved ones, death, and, and then everything else that we go through, empty nest, divorce, you name it. And we're all grieving something in one form or another. I mean, 9-11 was, you talk about the granddaddy of grief and trauma, but we're all in pain on some level. We all have our 9-11. So what would you say to someone, what you've learned? How can someone find that light in whatever challenge they're facing? Well, I mean, it, it comes again. It's, in, it's really shifting perspective, right? It could always be worse. It's bad, but yes, it can always be worse. Pretty much always. Not all, I mean, there's certain unexplainable situations. Like, I'll never be able to understand the Sandy Hook shootings. That's one I can't find a silver lining in at all. Right. But the truth of it is, it's really about seeing what we have instead of what we don't have. And I, I'll tell you this story. So within a few weeks, I was getting inundated with books and grief pamphlets and just anything under the sun. And I picked up this little pamphlet that was Xerox. And on the back of it, it said, although we've lost so much, we still have so much left. And my little kids, my daughter, my son, Jen and Bill were seven and four, and they were watching the adults around them completely unglued and this overwhelming, crazy energy they were in and just all the activity and just the chaos, right? And they wanted, you know, little kids want to know they're going to be okay. They're in an egocentric bubble until they're into adolescence. So they just need to know that they're going to be okay. And I tried to keep their life as normal as possible from the day it happened. They went to school. They went to gymnastics. They did all their normal things. But when I was tucking them in that night, I read them that, that little passage. And their little faces lit up because they could see there was going to be hope. And we've brought Ted along forward. Speaking of Teddy, you know, he's been with us the whole time. And as far as closure goes, I don't really believe in closure. I believe we need to move through grief. And that grief has a process. And, you know, as a thumbnail of timing, for me, I would say it's a, two, a very intense two-year window when you have a, a traumatic loss. And the first year is your year of firsts. And the second year is your year that everybody's forgotten about you and you're doing it yourself. And the third year, you kind of come out in a new place, a new normal. Not to say it's going to be easy, but that was more or less how it worked for me. And I just needed to understand the timeline. Like, I'd had no experience with, with any kind of death or beyond the uh, grandparent, which was in the normal, you know, order. But, you know, so to what, you know, for people with grief right now, grief is, an, is a necessary process in nature. Pain would not be in nature unless it was necessary. If nature is in perfect balance, right? So if we look at our pain differently, maybe our pain is the rocket fuel for learning. Maybe the trauma or the experience is actually an opener, for us to be open to different ideas and different ways to heal and different thinking. Like that's where my spirituality just came in. I was so open from the experience and the pain is so much that you just will do anything to get it to stop. The book is The Light in 9-11, Shocked by Kindness, Healed by Love. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa and her work, you can visit lisaluckett.com. Lisa, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to join us today. As we said, it's been 20 years, and it's really hard to believe that this much time has passed. But I'm really happy that you were here to keep Teddy's memory alive. And, and I'm so sorry for your loss, as I know all of our listeners are as well. And we're sorry for the loss of so many families. And I think it is important to honor those people who gave the ultimate sacrifice that day and... 
finding the light, finding the the positive in such a situation, it's a challenge for anyone, but I but I think it's such an important message because it's something that each of us can bring into our lives and help us with no matter what we're going through. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Joan. I'd, I'd love to leave with one last thought. Within a day, couple weeks of 9-11, this, this warrior sense started building within me in my stomach and my gut. And it wasn't a, an angry warrior. It was a warrior of love. And, the, and what it was was I knew I had to make something good come from 9-11 or the terrorists were going to win. And so I didn't even know what that meant, but I, was set, I set an intention that has brought me to today with you and the idea of finally figuring out the why of everything. And so it was the idea was I couldn't let Teddy and all the others die in vain. I had to make something good come from this. And that's how I feel about COVID as well. For all of those that we've lost, we can't let them die in vain. We need to heal from this. We need to grow and be better for it. We need to do to experience what, in fact, was my experience. And, and we all have it available, which is post-traumatic growth. How, what have we learned from our experience? How are we better for having lived it? What is the wisdom we've gained? That's the litmus test that we can ask ourselves after we've been through something difficult because we're really actually just here to grow. So good luck to everyone out there, and thank you very much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life but sometimes we just need a little help our coach on call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now joining me today is allison carmen a business consultant life coach and author of the gift of maybe offering hope and possibility in uncertain times allison's podcast 10 minutes to less suffering provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry allison's new book is a year without men welcome allison thank you so much for joining us Oh, thank you so much for having me, Joan. So, Allison, you say that men and women fear uncertainty to the same degree, but you believe that it holds women back more in their lives, especially in business. Can you explain what you mean by this? It is clear from my experience that women and men do fear uncertainty just as much. I I don't work with more women or more men that seem to have one problem over the other. But what's really interesting, because women and men are not totally equal in our society, meaning that men earn more than women, men hold more positions of power. The road for women for equality, the road for women for empowerment is more uncertain. And women often have to take more chances. Women often have to find new ways to raise money. They have to be very innovative to go to work and still deal with a lot of childcare issues, which women still predominantly deal with. So it's so interesting, though, although every men and women fear it the same, it affects women more because, like I said, their road is more uncertain. So if women can change their relationship with uncertainty and kind of find a better relationship with it, they're going to have more success. They're going to be more innovative. They're going to find a way to be more successful in a society that doesn't always welcome our power. So as you just explained, women face more challenges and and we have more uncertainty that we need to overcome. So how do we go about overcoming this fear? What can we do? Is there an exercise that you can share with us? Well, the first thing is that we need to be aware of it. 
we need to be aware of the things that hold us back. You know, I always say, are you looking to live your best life? And if you are, we have to choose sometimes between wanting to know, being certain, or willing to kind of go out into the world and, and be our best selves. And it's not easy. But the first thing is we need to be aware of the decisions that we make. We need to be aware, are we making this decision because we're looking for security or we're making this decision because that's the job we want? Are we making this decision because we just want to know and we want everyone to tell us it's going to be okay? Or are we making this decision because we want to start this new business? We want this relationship. It is allowing ourselves not to know. And when we allow ourselves not to know, we're going to be more our true selves. And I know I've gone over this many times, but for me, the thing that has healed my relationship with uncertainty is this idea of maybe, is this idea that I don't know. And because I don't know, so much more is possible for me. So what we do often is that we look and we're like, well, women don't have these positions. Women can't raise money. But with this idea of uncertainty and maybe, we don't know that's true. And then we're willing to take the risk. We're willing to show up whole. And we're just willing to be so much more in this world. And, and again, the, the exercise is what's your biggest fear? My biggest fear is that I can't compete in the corporate world. My biggest fear is women can't raise money, so how am I going to raise money? My biggest fear is I'm too old. I'm not going to be able to get married again. Whatever your fear is, ask yourself, are you absolutely certain that fear is true? And the beauty of uncertainty is you could never know. So when we know we don't know if our fear is true, then we could flip it around and say, well, if I don't know my fear is true, what else is possible? And that's when you start to incorporate the maybe. Maybe I could figure this out. Maybe things are going to get better. Maybe my thoughts are not true. Maybe there is a place for me to succeed and be happy and be successful. And maybe I could just move forward in a way that other people have not done before. And so this little word takes us from this place where we're scared and we're worried and we believe life is not possible to this other place where we're like, well, maybe men and women can be equal. Maybe I can earn as much. Maybe the world could be different than it is. So for me, I use this little word all the time when this fear of uncertainty starts creeping in. Like I said, we don't need certainty. We need to show up as our best selves. And when we, as women especially, are able to alter this relationship that we have in uncertainty, we realize uncertainty is our best friend because we want our lives to change. It has, has to happen in the unknown. And Allison, very quickly, tell us a little bit about your new book, A Year Without Men. Oh, it's a wonderful book. It's a female empowerment self-help book, and it's to help women deal with all these internal issues that we have at this point so we can go out into the world as our most powerful self and it deals with issues like uncertainty like acceptance like comparisons whatever we feel hold us back and when we can internally become whole we find more dignity more grace more self-confidence more self-love and i really believe this book will help so many women achieve the life that they really want. So once again, the title of Allison's new book is A Year Without Men. And if you'd like to get more information about the book or any of Allison's work, you can visit alisoncarmen.com. Or as always, to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Allison. We'll be right back. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words. However, I believe the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. And while we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So how can you get through a tragedy? Recognize that you have a choice in the situation. We often believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life. We think that we will never recover. The key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation. No matter how devastating the circumstance, you have the power to get through it. You are not a victim. The choice is yours. Never suppress your feelings. Hurt, sadness, and grief are all normal emotions and they should be felt. The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. 
Get help if you cannot do it by yourself. Read books and seek information that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. And seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and you have a choice. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan, this is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. For today's guest, Julie Murphy, creating plus size female superheroes is second nature. Julie's characters resonate with many women as they teach us to develop a positive body image no matter what the number on the scale reads. Julie is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Dumplin', which went on to be a film starring Jennifer Aniston. Her new book is If the Shoe Fits. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for having me. So, Julie, your work has impacted the lives of many people, women in particular. How did you get started writing? Uh, You know, writing never uh, came natural to me, actually. I loved reading when I was a kid, but I never really fell in love with reading as a teen, and I hated writing. It felt like homework so much. Um, I didn't really rediscover my love for reading until I was in college and sort of found a lot of comfort in books at a very difficult time in my life. And that was the first time that writing felt like something I could do. It felt like something attainable or feasible. Um, and it's really because I got uh, you know, involved in reading a lot of young adult books, and I loved how fast-paced they were and how exciting they were. And that just evolved into you know, becoming a librarian and then later on a writer. So when you developed your characters, you've created a lot of plus-size superheroes. Did you set out to develop these characters with a mission in mind? Um, I, if there's any mission at all, it's that I wanted to write characters who I felt like I could have stepped into their shoes at that age. You know, I, I didn't, I, I was always a, a chubby kid who then became a chubby teen and now a chubby woman. And so I never had characters that I felt like reflected me and my experience in a fair way. And so, you know, all of my characters, whether they're entering a pageant or they're superheroes or, you know, like Cindy and If the Shoe Fits going on a reality TV show, uh, I always like for them to, you know, be a representative of what my life was like at that time. That's why I love your characters so much, because I had a similar upbringing. I was a chubby kid and chubby teen, and I've always struggled with my weight, like so many women do. And I just love the way you portray your characters. We we talk a lot on this show about body image and, and self-love from the inside out. And, and that's why I wanted to do this interview with you, because I really do think that you're giving us strong female characters to resonate with. Yeah, you know, I, I truly believe that our bodies aren't something that we should struggle against. They're something that we should embrace and be thankful for the things they can do and the things they can give us and really tapping into that. And so, um, you know, all of my characters are fully aware of who they are and what they look like. And the end goal for them is never to lose weight. It's always for them to grow in some other type of like character arc or to achieve something they've always wanted to achieve because I feel like I spent so much of my life sitting around waiting for this thinner version of myself to appear. And Mm -hmm. once that thinner version appeared, I would start living my life and I would start doing the things I wanted to do and traveling and all these other things. And I sort of had this wake up call moment in my twenties where I realized like, this is it. This is the body you have. So let's do it. Let's live life and let's do it as big as we can. So many of us do that. You know, they say, oh, well, when I lose X amount of weight, then my life will begin. I'll start dating. I'll start doing this. And they have the whole laundry list. But the interesting part is when you do lose the weight, often you see yourself the same way. So it really is working on the mindset from that inside out. It's really true. And I mean, if, if anything, this last year has taught us all that life is short. It's unexpected. And, you know, if if this is the last month of your life, how are you going to spend it? So, Julie, what have you learned through your experiences and your characters that can help a woman see herself in a different light? You know, I've really learned that uh, the the journey of learning how to become body positive 
is not this like you know roller coaster ride where you're constantly going up and you're constantly progressing i've learned that there are ups and downs and for as kind as you need to be to your body to your physical body you also need to be really kind to yourself mentally and be patient with yourself as you're hopefully starting to embrace yourself so tell us about your new book if the shoe fits sure so if the shoe fits is a modern retelling of disney's classic cinderella Uh, with a romantic comedy spin. And in this retelling, the main character's name is Cindy, and she is a recently graduated fashion student. She's a young plus-size woman. And she is also finding herself as a contestant on a reality television dating show where she just might have the chance to meet her own Prince Charming. Did you choose a fashion student to make a statement because the fashion industry is so, they have such a a particular image of what a beautiful woman is? Oh, definitely. Um, When I graduated high school, actually one of the opportunities I was thinking about pursuing was attending the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in L.A., And uh, I felt really passionate about pursuing a career in fashion for a very long time because, you know, the average woman is above a size 14. Like we're talking about 60 to 70 percent of the of women in this country. And for fashion companies not to cater to that, that's just bad business. It doesn't make any sense. Um, And so why is why is fashion this thing that's sort of like an insider club only when really like we all need clothing to go about our everyday lives. You know what I mean? We all want to we all have to look a certain way to go to a job interview. We all have to look a certain way to go to a wedding. And so why are we denying access to people who are just, you know, a few sizes bigger than everybody else? Or it just doesn't make any sense. I love that you wrote. Cinderella in this way, because for little girls in particular, but you know, it's it's that fairy tale we carry with us throughout life of being the beautiful princess and winning the prince and overcoming all of the challenges that she did. But I like the slant that you've added, making her more real. And, and I really think that's going to give a lot of women hope. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, for me, Cinderella was the first Disney princess that I really connected to as a child. I remember sitting in my grandmother's living room and sitting way too close to the TV and just obsessing over every little detail of that film. And getting to reimagine her as a plus-size woman, it's just, it's, you know, giving wings to every hope I had as a kid of what I could be and who I could become. We've been talking about your characters, but I'd like to talk about you for a moment, if we can. You're out there, very public. You're you're making speeches. And, and what did it take for you to overcome any fears that you may have had? And I ask this because the first time when I started this work 11 years ago, I had lost a lot of weight, but I still had that whole view of myself in a particular way. And the first time I was asked to go out and make a public speech, I was panicked, you know, so I I threw on my black from head to toe and my black sweater thinking I was, you know, masking whatever. And it was really difficult to bring myself to be able to do that. How about in your life? What, What were the challenges that you faced and how were you able to overcome them? You know, for me in my 20s, this wake-up call came in the form of realizing that entire industries were built around uh, them banking on me hating myself. And that made me really angry. And so, so much of, like, my early acceptance of my body was based in that, like, rebellion and anger. And so even the things I was scared to do, I did out of spite. So even the times I was scared to get in front of an audience and speak, I did it because no one thought I should be able to do it. Even the times that, you know, I, you know, went on press junkets with movie stars and things like that, I did it because no one thought I should do it. And now I feel so much more comfortable doing all those things and being on camera or being in front of an audience. Um, and, you know, of course, it helps that, like, I grew up as a theater kid. So, you know, the the theater idiom of if you can't, if you, you know, you can't make it, fake it, or fake it till you make it, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just has always been really alive and well in my psyche. But that's great because you found your motivation, I found my motivation. So whatever motivates a person, it's taking those baby steps to go outside of his or her comfort zone. Exactly, exactly. So you said before that the way the fashion industry was sizing clothes, you know, in particular to what the average woman actually is, that that's bad business. Why do you think the beauty industry continues to create this unattainable image of what beautiful is? If it isn't smart business, is it that they're just creating a fantasy that we all want? I do think that's a lot of it. I I also think that 
it's slowly evolving. Things are beginning to change. Um, but I also, you know, it's, it's really hard to break people of this habit, of this idea that beauty looks like X, Y, Z. So I think it's going to take time. And I do think it's going to be a, a little bit of like the changing of the old guard. I, you know, I hate to say that, you know, as older generations like move on and retire, but I really do think that, you know, the younger generation has a real eye for this and has a real clear understanding of what it means to fully embrace yourself at any size or at any juncture of your life. So I mentioned earlier that your book, Dumplin', was made into a movie starring Jennifer Aniston. Was it intentional in creating those characters to have Dumplin' have such a beautiful mother? Is that a message? Because I know I had done actually recently an an interview with a, a woman who helps other women create a more positive body image. And she said that a lot of girls receive this messaging from a young age in their own home that they're not enough. Their flaws are pointed out to them which then makes this become part of who they are. Was that something that you wanted to tackle in that story? You know, in Dumplin', that was a really intentional decision on my part. Um, Growing up, and you should know that I love my mom. She's one of my best friends. But she's not perfect because none of us are. And growing up, I just remember her looking at herself in the mirror and criticizing every inch and every role and every imperfection. And to me, my mom was and has always been the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. And so if she was imperfect, if she thought she was gross and disgusting and, you know, unattractive, then what did that make me? Because I was, you know, a little chubby kid that looks like a Mm roly-poly. What can we be doing to help our daughters have a more positive body image as they grow? I really think it starts ourselves. We have to rethink how we're talking about our bodies, especially in front of our children, and not just our daughters, also in front of our sons, um, because... You know, guys have body issues, too. And on top of that, men are part of the problem at times in perpetuating that unrealistic body image. It's not just women, you know, perpetuating that on, you know, on each other. It's also a standard that we give to our boys. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that boys also have body image issues and, you know, that to reconsider their expectations of what beauty might be. And Julie, if you could sum up your messaging, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, I think that I would just simply say that happily ever after is for everyone, and it's not, there's no uh, size limit or weight limit when it comes to living your dreams and being the person who you want to be. The book is If the Shoe Fits. If you'd like to get more information, you can visit imjuliemurphy.com. Julie, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you so much. This was great. I really, really appreciate it. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you a small or mid-sized business owner? Have you been struggling to keep your business afloat during these difficult times and the COVID restrictions? Hi, I'm Ed Lamoureux, an experienced marketing strategist and content creator. Like you and the clients I represent, I've been challenged to raise my business's visibility and that of my clients to attract new customers despite the unprecedented challenges we all face today. One effective way to get the job done is through digital marketing. Many business owners think that marketing is advertising or paid media, commercials, and print ads. While those tactics provide results and should be part of an overall plan, they often come at a hefty price and can take months to deliver return on your investment. Today's marketing success starts with digital media and online platforms where your customers gather and where you should be engaged in conversation. Think of Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and other social media hangouts as gatherings of people who love to share information, recommendations, and content you can create. Having a marketing strategy and creating interesting content, photos, videos, articles, they can all change your fortunes, literally. If you'd like to discuss how you can effectively promote your business without emptying your wallet, connect with me and take advantage of my free 30-minute consultation to brainstorm ideas that will lead to success. Visit LamoreStrategies.com. That's L-A-M-O-U-R Strategies.com. Or email me at Ed at LamoreStrategies.com. Do you ever feel like there is no support and you are doing things all on your own? With hypnosis, you can bring in the feeling of being supported. 
Hi, I'm Mary Beth Battaglia, and I am a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. Many times, people feel disconnected and the weight of the world upon them. It's not a very comfortable place to live in. Through the mind and visualization, we can create support within us and all around us. Take a moment to take a nice deep breath in and slowly let it out. And imagine yourself in a forest sitting against a tall, strong tree. Allow yourself to feel the tree having your back. Feel the love from the tree. Feel the support and draw from its strength to help you feel good within and supported. Allow yourself to really embrace it and see yourself moving forward in your life with the support, with the strength from the tree. And just see yourself feeling complete and happy. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, and you can find out more about hypnosis at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often, that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, then that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club. A resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. your health. Joining me today is Mark Anthony, the founder of Prospect Fitness located in Brooklyn, New York. Mark is also the vice president of operations for Diet Typing Systems, an online personalized diet therapy system. He's here today to discuss mitochondrial efficiency. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on today. So, Mark, mitochondrial efficiency, this sounds so important. What exactly is it and how does it impact our life? Mitochondrial efficiency has to do with how effectively your body produces energy. It also deals with how well you care for your mitochondria, which ultimately leads to a healthy body. Mitochondria are little bacteria-like organelles, structures located in our cells. There are many functions of of the mitochondria. However, the primary purpose of mitochondria is to produce energy for our bodies from the food that we eat and the air we breathe. Mitochondria can also regulate the atmosphere of the cell, respond to hormones, and are responsible for cell death. Roughly 70 billion cells die in an adult body every day. So then how does our diet affect mitochondrial efficiency? Our diets probably have the greatest effect on mitochondrial efficiency. Without proper nutrients like B vitamins, coenzyme Q10, alpha-lipoic acid, and antioxidants, the mitochondria do not function well. A poor diet can also lead to the destruction of the mitochondria's DNA, which research is learning 
can lead to diseases like cancer, Parkinson's, and autism. Can we help our bodies create more mitochondria? Absolutely. Exercise is probably one of the best ways to build mitochondrial density. Our cells have a range of a few dozen mitochondria to several thousand per cell, with most cells having one to two thousand mitochondria. Mitochondria can possibly make up to 40% of our biomass. The more the body senses the need for greater energy through exercise, the more the cells will pack them with mitochondria. Since mitochondria are part of the body that burns fat, the more you have, the greater your chances for weight loss success. Also, you will want to do both strength training and cardio exercise to build mitochondrial density. Where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? As always, you can visit our website, prospectfitness.com. Mark, thank you so much for being here. This is such an interesting topic. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. I am incredibly, incredibly proud to be a physician here at St. Jude. To be in a place where I know my patients are going to get the top-notch care, not only care, but also research happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Every single person that contributes is a part of that St. Jude family that makes that happen. Because of everyone that is really committed to the mission of St. Jude, we're giving families hope. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 